Hello, and welcome to Video Game Proscripts. Today, we're going to be looking at the game In Cold Blood, released in the year 2000. While it's not the best game to try and play, more on that later, it does represent an interesting moment in time where the point-and-click adventure games of the 90s were attempting to adapt to changing times by mixing in different gameplay elements. Ultimately, this play would be unsuccessful until the indie-led point-and-click renaissance of the mid-2010s, but it's interesting to see how things played out in the meantime. Let's begin with some background. In Cold Blood was released in the year 2000 and was developed by Revolution Software for the PlayStation 1 and PC. Revolution Software are a British company founded in 1989 and had an impressive resume of adventure games, going back to the days of DOS, under their belt when they began work on In Cold Blood. Most notably, the company was responsible for the lure of the Temptress in 1992 and, a personal favourite of yours truly, Beneath a Steel Sky in 1994. They then developed the first two games in the Broken Sword series of adventure games before being contacted by Sony to develop a game for the PlayStation 1 with a PC release coming later. Make a note of this shift into developing for consoles because it will become a point in understanding the gameplay of both In Cold Blood and the later Broken Sword games. The director of In Cold Blood, one Charles Cecil, stated that the game's development was influenced by crime films such as Pulp Fiction and The Usual Suspects, and that the studio wanted to move away from their previous releases by focusing on a secret agent storyline. Revolution Software also developed their very own in-house engine for the game. Upon In Cold Blood's release, reaction from critics was good to middling. However, the game was a commercial success and would allow Revolution Software to continue to exist and create games up to the current day. Their latest release was 2021's Beyond a Steel Sky, a sequel to Beneath a Steel Sky. With the stage set, let's take a look at the super spy plot of In Cold Blood. In Cold Blood opens with a CGI cutscene showcasing all the glorious pre-rendered CGI the year 2000 had to offer. I, unironically, am quite charmed by them in a weird way, likely because I was a child when this was the norm. The cutscene starts as a trailer for the rest of the game, the main character tumbling through ice into a lake or cutting between various other cutscenes that we will see later. It's all scored by an arrangement that gestures towards the orchestral, which is doing a great imitation of an old James Bond film score. The cutscene then moves to the main character, James Cord, being interrogated by having his head drowned in a bucket. The interrogator, who mostly features green eyes and big bushy white eyebrows, tells Cord to tell him everything from the beginning. It's at this point Cord's voice, done by actor Nicholas Grace, cuts in and begins narration, and that will also be narrating that plays actions for the rest of the game. We begin at the first mission, where Cord is a British secret agent who is being briefed by his stern female English boss, Alpha, about a missing CIA agent, Tifa. From Alpha's presentation and direction, this is the M substitute in the vein of Judy Dench. I'm going to stop listing every single way that this game copies the James Book playbook. Rest assured, if you think something sounds similar, it very likely is. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but I wanted you to know that that's the vibe. Regardless, the CIA agent Kiefer has gone missing in a fictional country of Volgia while investigating a uranium mine. Volgia is located between China and Russia 
and seems to be a mishmash of Mongolia and several other Eastern European countries. It also seems to be in possession of some quite advanced technology, including floating drone gun platforms and advanced power generation. The first level finds caught at the front of the uranium mine where Kiefer went missing, being aided by a Bulgarian resistance fighter named Kostov. If you imagine a cliched, rotund Eastern European stereotype, you get the picture of Kostov. Always cracking inappropriate jokes, actually quite physically strong, and says da every second sentence. Once Kostov distracts the guard and the players inside the facility, the rest of your inventory can be explored. Medical kits, a gun, a lighter, and a piece of technology called a remora, all capital letters. The remora is basically an in-universe explanation of anything too video gamey, dressed up as a spy gadget. It has a minimap, your objectives, files and information on anyone you've uncovered, the ability to communicate with anyone whose frequency you have, and the ability to hack computer terminals to advance the puzzles. If you're diligent, you can look through the files and make the connection at the start that the person interrogating you in the opening cutscene is the leader of Volga, Dmitry Nagarov. Cord works his way deeper into the facilities, finding out that Kiefer has escaped into Mine B, and that this mine has futuristic power generation capabilities and a particle accelerator on site, all powered by a mysterious blue substance. This is cementing the fact that this small, secretive nation is ahead of the rest of the world somehow. In the second part of the mine, Ford happens across a scientist named Professor Tolstov, who is in deep conversations with a Chinese spy who threatens the player before escaping. Tolstov is cagey, so he, he hacked the nearby security console to discover information on where his daughter is being held captive by the Bulgarian government in order to force him to work. Once we assure Tolstov that his daughter is alive and well, he opens up. The Chinese spy's name is Chi Ling Chung, and Kiefer was last seen deeper in the mine. Furthermore, the mysterious blue substance is called trinephaline, or blue nepheline, and is a miracle substance that can break the laws of physics. Blue nepheline is mined from a meteorite that crashed into the mountain where the mine is located. Having advanced the plot somewhat, Professor Tolstov opens up a security door to allow us to proceed. Finally reaching the bottom of the mine, Ford discovers Kiefer's dead body, where it appears he was caught out by the advanced technology of Volgia, in this case, a laser tripwire attached to an automated minigun. Kiefer's body holds a trinephaline power cell he's attempting to smuggle out, as well as a wealth of information on trinephaline that the science boffins back home need. One half exciting, half frustrating chase scene later, and Cord is in a minecart escaping the mine and completing the level. For completing the level, we're treated to another CGI cutscene of our ongoing interrogation. Nagarov asks his goon, Lukian, to inject us with something, and we set up the next mission. It's set in the Volgia Security HQ, called the Pentagrad, which is perhaps a play on the name Pentagon. Alpha, our British boss, wants more information on what the Vulgarians are using trinephaline for, and wants us to plant a surveillance bug in Nagarov's office. Kostov wants us to steal information so the security forces don't know what he and his resistance forces are up to, and Cord, personally, wants to save Alexandria, Professor Tolstov's daughter we found out about in the previous mission. So really, everyone wants us to get stuck in, and so we do, sneaking in through a sewer. 
There's also a new piece of kit on this mission, an EMP mine, to take out the floating gun robots that are impervious to our pistol in the previous level. The first stages of this level allow us to test out the EMP mine, and it works a treat, knocking out any floating robots we lure into it. Quickly reaching the cells of the Pentagrat, we get to see who all the torture criminal on display, before finding Professor Tolstov's daughter Alexandria, who as it turns out, likes to be called Alex. But moving through the building, Paul makes it to the roof, where the Chinese spy Chi Ling has been captured and has been questioned by Nagarov and Lukin. During this cutscene, a guard informs Nagarov that Kord has infiltrated the building and Nagarov prepares to flee the area, taking Alex and Chi Ling with him. Having failed his personal objective, Kord creeps through the now abandoned offices and plants his surveillance bug for Alpha, secures the information for Kostov, and leaves through the sewers. Mission complete. Mission complete, of course, means another CGI interrogation scene, though it seems the development team might have been running out of budget here. The scene is basically still images with voiceover dubbed over the top. Still, we frame the next mission. Alpha wants to board a land train, essentially a huge machine with tracks that runs across the snowy mountaintops of the country to rescue the Chinese spy Chi and find out what she knows. One cute little cutscene involving a grapple hook gun in the snow later, and the player resumes control at the bottom of the land train. Paul continues to do what he does best, sneaking around, dispatching guards, questioning people, disabling robots, hacking computers, and other general spy stuff. There's one of Kostov's men in the first of the five train cars that tells Cord that they've planted a bomb to go off in either 25 or 15 minutes, depending on how fast the player has reached this point. This counts down in real time for the player until they sort it out. The next two land train cars contain robots, soldiers, and silos with some pretty serious missiles. It also involves the most tiresome part of the game to date, as the player wrestles with the controls to backtrack again and again through different train cars. Making it to the front of the land train, we find Chi Ling, shooter captor, engage in some light banter, and plan to hijack the land train, leaving the heart behind the part that has the bomb on it. Feeling also informs us that Nagarov has already left, taking Alex with him. Ford and Cheeling muddle about a bit, taking verbal pot shots at each other, and while trying to uncouple the front train car from the rest of it, Cheeling misleads Cord into making the other train cars self-destruct. This is something the resistance bomb would have done anyway, but Cord is mad at being one-upped. To storm the bridge of the land train, wiping out the rest of the guards, and convincing the pilot to get them out of there, complete the mission. Completing the mission means that it's back to everyone's favorite framing device. The interrogation scene, again, using the same stills as last time, sets up that Kord and Chi Ling next decide to attempt to kidnap Nakarov as he inspects an industrial accident at the ominously named containment facility. Furthermore, this is Chi Ling's plan, and Kord acts on it without first consulting with Alpha, as there was no time to wait for, quote-unquote, authorization from London. Nagarov scoffs, calls Cord and Sheeling both traitors, and we're off to the next mission, where Cord is infiltrating the containment facility in the back of a truck, while Sheeling waits with the stolen chopper to extract. Working his way through the facility, clearly the site of some sort of nefarious research. Think ominous, huge, bubbling tubes of liquid, and machines that pull the operator's heads off when they malfunction. Reaching the floor where the accident mentioned in the cutscene happened, 
Court is set upon by a swarm of malfunctioning tiny robots, and the mood sways towards horror as room after ruined room of corpses must be picked over. This is effectively aided by the set camera angles that the entire game is based around, as in this level, camera angle is sometimes that of a security camera that we're viewing the scene through. The cause of all this carnage is a haywire giant robot that has dismembered everyone on the floor. Thor does his usual trick of running in circles to run the robot into a trap he set up and the robot is defeated. Getting further into the lab, Thor discovers the human experimentation on political prisoners that the lab has been undertaking. There's actually some stuff I find personally disturbing in the data files that lay all this out, so I won't be going into exact details. Court frees one of the prisoners that has been lobotomized, however, the man is too far gone to accompany Court and escape. The very next room has huge jars of fluid where Nagarov is growing mutants. Nagarov is there and has Alex with him, using her as a human shield while he boasts the Court that his tri-nephilene-powered supercomputers are going to hack Chinese and American defense systems to trick the countries into a nuclear war. Nagarov then flees with Court in pursuit but Nagarov escapes in his personal helicopter. Chiling picks Cord up, and the mission is over. End of the mission means it's back to the interrogation scene. The next mission is a return to the mine from the first mission. This time, Kostov has the idea to blow up the refinery on top of the mine and prevent the production of blue nephilim. Chiling agrees with the plan, but can't come on a mission for unspecified reasons. Alpha tells Cord to stay out of it, but he goes anyway. So Kostov and Kord sneak back into the mine, and the next mission begins. Kord begins by working through the mine with Kostov, who packs a shotgun and sparks Kord's ire by shooting an unarmed technician. Differences of opinion abound. After he's made his way to the ground floor of the refinery, Kord runs into Tolstov again, who, again, begs Kord to save his daughter. Kord questions Tolstov about where Negrov might launch a nuke from, Yes, this bot thread surprised me because it comes from nowhere, and is informed about an old naval shipyard on the coast. Tolstov also warns Kord that someone has betrayed his plan to attack the refinery and that the guard has been doubled. Tolstov and Kord are then interrupted by a guard and a hovering robot, with Tolstov sacrificing himself to give Kord time to escape. Kord manages to plant the bomb that will destroy the blue nephrine refinery before escaping with Kostov. During the escape, Kostov finds the body of a squad of his men that were ambushed, betrayed by whoever had been selling the whole operation out. Kostov blames Chi Ling, but Kord insists upon her innocence. It's then a cut back to the ongoing interrogation, but Kord reveals that Alpha believes Kostov to be the traitor. Nagarov presses Kord about the next mission, and Kord reveals that he was to infiltrate a naval base, destroying the supercomputer that is hacking the US and Chinese defense systems, and destroy any missiles that Nagarov has access to. Gord decides to infiltrate the base with Chiling in tow. First obstacle is to enter through the main monorail doors. Gord does his thing. Through various snowy bunkers, he hacks terminals, eliminates guards, destroys robots, and generally makes a nuisance of himself until he gets the key he needs. When he returns to the monorail door where he left Chiling, who should he find? But Kostov, holding Chiling at gunpoint. Kostov is still fired up about his men being slaughtered and accuses Chi Ling of being the traitor while Kord defends her. Kord's defense of Chi Ling is based on nothing that I can see in the game so far. Kostov decides this means Kord is guilty, turns his gun on him, so Chi Ling shoots Kostov, 
Ford is obviously conflicted about Kostov's death, but pushes on with Chi Ling. This happens, sorry, this continues until Chi Ling is forced to stay behind to hack a computer while Cord pushes on alone. Sabotaging the naval base's trinethylene reactor, Cord reaches the supercomputer and inserts his sabotage device. At this moment, he is captured by Lukian and Nagarov, and our story stops being a flashback and catches up to the ongoing torture scene that we've been seeing between missions. Nagarov reveals to us it was Alpha, our London controller, who has betrayed us. Alpha Video calls in and confirms it, saying that Britain has decided the economic benefits of receiving trinethylene shipments from Nagarov outweighs anything else. The entire interrogation Cord has been undergoing was to find out if Cord had been acting on Alpha's order when he blew up the refinery, and satisfied that Alpha is indeed in his pocket and Cord was acting on his own, Nagarov promises not to launch the nuclear missile in exchange for Britain's ambassador endorsing Bulgarian sovereignty at the UN. Then, alarms start blaring as the reactor cord has sabotage begins to go critical. Nagarov cuts the video cord to Alpha, tells Cord he's going to die in the explosion anyway, and then leaves while telling Lukian to go ahead with the nuclear missile strike. Once they've left, Chi shows up to tell Cord she has orders from Beijing to kill him. Cord proposes that if he quit the British Secret Service, Chi would have no reason to kill him, and he could go save Alex, stop Nagarov, and prevent the missile launch. Chi counters that she could only disobey orders if she also quit her Secret Service, which she promptly does, and frees Cord. They free Alex from a different cell at the naval base and escape in a helicopter, in pursuit of Nagarov's nuclear submarine, which they force to surface by blowing a hole in it before it can dive away. Leaving Alex with a helicopter, Keeling and Cord assault the surface submarine. While searching for the two keys that can stop the nuclear launch, Keeling is captured by Nagarov, again, and Lukian attacks Cord. Cord punches Lukian into an engine of spinning blades, which I can only assume is standard issue on a nuclear submarine, and presses on to free Keeling with one of the required keys in his possession. Nagarov gets a drop on Cord and holds Cord at gunpoint to gloat and offers a job to Cord, just your standard villain stuff, before a beam falls from the ceiling and pins Nagarov in place. Cord gets the second key off him, ports the nuclear launch, finds and frees Chiling, and escapes the submarine while leaving Nagarov to go down with it. We get one last little CGI scene where Cord phones Alpha to tell him he's quit and tells her that he's informed the Americans and Chinese about her deal with Nagarov. Alpha blusters that Cord is finished and Cord drops one last one-liner before he then walks into the sunset on a beach with Chi Ling and Alex waiting for him as some sort of, you'll excuse, excuse the pun, nuclear family. And that is the end of In Gold Blood by Revolution Software. Knowing how the plot plays out, our next question is, how does the game look? Graphically, In Cold Blood looks pretty good even by today's standards. While the cutscenes are cutting-edge CGI from the year 2000, they're still clear and kind of endearing in their own way. It's like a more polished version of the visual style of the music video for Eiffel 65 Blue, WDWDA. In-game, every scene is presented from a fixed viewpoint, which means most of them are effectively painted on backgrounds, with some objects being interactable. This means most of the scenes look quite good, 
in the glossy, overly smooth early 2000s way. I'd also like to pause here to praise the environmental design of this game. The fictional country of Volgia is meant to be a highly advanced, almost sci-fi civilization in Eastern Europe, and the design of the environments is top-notch. Everything is recognizable and vaguely familiar, but much larger and more ornate than it normally is. A train car might be larger than expected, with the inside of it decorated with raised etchings of almost recognizable designs, paired with the functional element of a door button that the player can recognize and interact with, despite there being no written descriptions as there might have been in older point-and-click adventure games. It makes everything feel vaguely threatening, and does a lot to convey the mood and themes of the narrative. All of this is assisted by the fact that HUD elements are minimal and quickly disappear, allowing the excellent environments to continue to do their work. The design of this game is listed as being done by Tony Warriner, so hats off to them and whoever else assisted in the feel of these environments. Where the visuals of the game tends to stumble is in the character models. To be expected, given the times and the fact that these can't be painted on, but they do tend to stand out when placed against the backgrounds. What you have is similar to the character models from the first Metal Gear Solid or an early Resident Evil game, with perhaps only slightly smoother textures on some of the clothing. Mostly, however, we're talking pretty blocky polygons on top of some quite nice, fixed perspective backgrounds. So now you know what the game is about and a bit about how it looks, how does it play? Just going to have to rip the band-aid off on this one. In Cold Blood plays very poorly. Its controls are difficult to use. We're talking player relative controls, or what I refer to as tank controls, we have to internalize which direction the player model is facing in relation to themselves instead of the fixed perspective that you're playing from. The movement is sluggish and frustrating. Oftentimes you get the character to run only for the model to brush against the edge of an object and shoot off at a 90 degree angle. The area where interactable objects are actually interactable is imprecise and unclear. You might be standing in front of a console, having Cord go through his entire animation to get out his hacking device, only for it not to work because you need to shuffle slightly to the left for it to count. There is a sidestep option, but you have to hold down a separate button while moving and attempting to judge its slow and clunky nature. To fire your weapon, you have to hold down a separate button to draw your weapon, radically changes how to play a model controls, attempt to swing it into a direction so the auto aim kicks in, and then press another button to fire. All of this might be manageable if this was just a relaxed puzzle game, but this is more of an action game than an adventure game, meaning there are entire sections where you have to cheat at like a shooting gallery and fight the controls. Additionally, multiple sections are timed and force you to deal with the really awful running controls. It's worth stating but the majority of these problems seem to stem from the fact that we've got a developer whose previous efforts were in point-and-click adventure games, i.e. with a mouse pointer, now making similar games but with controller inputs in mind. What's particularly infuriating is that there is an option in the PC game to turn the controls from player relative to screen relative, which would be a marked improvement, but it can only be done if a 90s era joystick is detected. So if you've just got a mouse and keyboard, it's tough luck. I can't really give a reason why this particular decision was made. This is an issue that will continue for the next few years at Revolution Software, with similar criticisms being leveled at the third game in the Broken Sword series. Though we should note that Revolution Software seems to have worked out how to make this control style work, 
with their latest release, Beyond a Steel Sky, seeming to have a similar system that, by all reports, works quite well on consoles. So we've addressed the controls in the action gameplay, how do the puzzles stack up? Well the good news is that most of the puzzles are pretty common sense and quite straightforward. As an example, you need a rope to cross a chasm. You find a quartermaster who has the rope you need but won't give it to you. You threaten him with your gun and he gives you the rope. Puzzle solved. To be honest, these sorts of obstacles aren't really puzzles so much as finding the right item, but it is nice not to have to deal with the prime, late 90s adventure game nonsense where the solution is never going to be found outside of trying every item with every other item in your inventory. In Cold Blood does have its own annoying quirks though, for instance, the option you need on a computer terminal won't appear until you've talked to someone a few screens over and then you return to the terminal and now the option appears. If you are going to play this game, have a walkthrough handy for when you know the solution but need to know which exact sequence of moves the games wants you to enter before you can use the solution that you've already worked out. So, gameplay-wise, In Cold Blood features poor action and middling adventure mechanics. So why make a podcast about it at all? To begin, the interesting part about In Cold Blood is not just it was one of the only PC games available for rent from my local blockbuster as a child, nor is it the fact for stubborn reasons I'm not even able to articulate, after I played this game for the podcast, I decided to speedrun the game and have the best time out of two on speedrun.com. No, the most interesting thing about this game is how it represents a transitional period for the popularity of certain genres of video games. Prior to this, one of the most popular genres was point-and-click adventure games with increasingly obscure methods of solving their puzzles. As they began to fade from popularity, Many developers were thinking about how to pivot from this genre while still being able to use all the experience they had in making those sorts of games. In Cold Blood is one such attempt, and while I'd say it doesn't quite succeed, it is interesting in how it attempts to keep a mostly puzzle-based game with the puzzle difficulty turned down and the action elements work through. Other games would steal its lunch money, after all this game came out a mere two years after the original Metal Gear Solid, which is also a secret agent based action game. But I think it's interesting to see how gaming can evolve by trying a number of different things before a successful formula is hit upon. In this case, we learn that people seem to like it when the puzzles were done away with altogether, and this has led to a number of highly successful games and genres if you think about the Uncharted series or the Horizon series, among countless others. That said, would I recommend that you play In Cold Blood? Honestly, not really. Control scheme-wise, the superior version would have to be the PS1 version, which is no longer available for sale. The puzzles are both too simple and also obtuse in their solution, and the action doesn't play well at all. The narrative is an interesting enough romp, but it's a trashy airport paperback style of plot, so it's pretty disposable. However, you might enjoy it for a little bit. If you're particularly interested in the history of the genre or in this style of game, maybe pick it up and burn through it with a walkthrough. But otherwise, there are other revolution software games that are more worth your time. Thank you for listening to this podcast on In Cold Blood. For the next podcast, I decided to either go down the route of finding a better adventure game or a better action game, and I leaned heavily towards Beneath the Steel Sky Revolution Software's excellent adventure game from 1994. However, 
A quick Google search has already shown that this particular game is something of a beloved classic and has plenty of coverage that I would effectively just be rehashing. So instead, we're going to do a great action game that I think deserves more love in 1992's flashback from Delphine Software. I hope you can join me then.